Paul McLaughlin. McLaughlin at work, delighted to be with you today and more so to have you at the other end, the listening end of two interviews presented for your listening enjoyment. As you know, we always or more often interview authors and we're less interested in their book, although that usually is the foundation for the discussion, but more interested in their expertise, what got them there, where do they think it's all going, put it in perspective. The first, and, and we've been doing this long enough at McLaughlin at Work, that I'm happy to say that we're getting authors back on their second and third books that we can discuss with them. So there's some continuity and some familiarity with their work as it has built up, delighted to say. First interview is with Mark Yost. Mark has written a book that is coming out here in 2010 called Varsity Green, and Varsity Green is about the culture and the commercial excesses, if you will, of college athletics. I uh, skimmed through the book. Mark and I, as I said, have met earlier when he wrote a book about NASCAR and about the NFL tailgating. And uh, I introduced him at the time to my daughter, who was a rising ballerina. She was in the midst of the conclusion of a long training program here at the School of American Ballet in New York. Subsequently, she has graduated from high school, is awaiting uh, deferring college as she starts off in her career as a ballerina with Los Angeles Ballet. Mark was intrigued by her college aspirations and where ballet would take her and folds that into the beginning of this book, Varsity Green, but then goes on to deal with the other side, which is big-time football, big-time academics, big-time athletics, and where they merge in the president's office, in the booster clubs, around the country, in the fan base that takes college athletics very seriously. And Mark takes a good look at it. I'm not sure where it all goes. I'm not sure that he is either, other than it somehow takes advantage of the kids uh, the kids being the younger people who are pressed, perhaps, or impressed with the potential dream of LeBron James and others like him, and there aren't many, uh, and how small a percentage of the youth of the parish who and go out and play football seriously at the age of 10, play basketball seriously at the age of 11, and what difference does that make? I'm not sure. Uh, but we will explore that with uh, Mark Yost in the uh, var book Varsity Green. Uh, secondly, we have a uh, discussion with a former flyer, Air Force flyer, Lieutenant Colonel Rob Waldo Waldman, and his book is Never Fly Solo. What he has done is to take his experience as a fighter pilot and the importance of relationships and the notion of the wingman into the business world and is capitalizing on the non-commercial success of being a storied pilot and transferring that to the application of these guidelines for relationships that will help in the business community. That's with Rob Waldo Waldman in our second interview. But before we take you flying, 
Put on a helmet of a different sort, buckle up the chin straps, and Mark Yost. The Varsity Green, Stanford University Press, all about the business and culture of college athletics, writ broad, but narrowly focused in some respects on football. Mark, delighted to have you back with us. Well, thanks for having me, Paul. Give us the, um, the uh, where did Varsity Green come from, and what is the hypothesis? Well, where Varsity Green came from was an idea to, to look at some of the cliches and, and, and sort of generalities about college athletics, about the money, about the scholarships, about the athletes, and, and really come at it from as objective as I could possibly be in looking at this and saying, you know, everything's not good, but everything's not bad about college athletics. And um, a good example of that is the coaches' salaries. A lot of people are appalled at the money that some of these football and basketball coaches make. Um, Mac Brown at the University of Texas just signed a new contract, um, setting the bar once again for college uh, coaches, $5 million a year. But as I explained in the book, what a lot of people don't understand is a very small percentage, somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 to 10 percent of that salary actually comes from the college. Most of it comes from uh, endorsement deals, you know, sneaker and, 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 and equipment deals, uh, media contracts. They, they sell the broadcast rights for these teams and from boosters. Um, when North Carolina State decided they needed a first-class basketball coach, the Wolfpack Club, which is their wealthy boosters club, they were ready to pony up $2 million a year, donations from alumni, to pay the salary to get the right coach. So, so yes, the coach does, in gross figures, make more than the college president or, or even the governor, for that matter. But in reality, when you look at the numbers, very little of that money comes out of the, the, the university itself. Let's, um, let's take a step back and, and go immediately to your epilogue in the book, Varsity Green, the author, Mark Yost. In that, and I quote, in short, the NCAA system of college athletics is broken, it is financially and academically corrupt, and morally bankrupt. Um, the beginning of your book details the fact that maybe the initials have changed, the acronyms have changed, but this has been the, the story of sport in America, and it's tied to institutions, be they academic or government. Uh, give us a little bit of the sense of the past and how we got to where we are. Put it in perspective for us. Well, um, unfortunately, that what you said is exactly true, that, that there has been corruption, uh, cheating, if you will, in college athletics since the very beginning. The, the very first collegiate athletic contest was a rowing contest between Harvard and Yale on a lake in New Hampshire. In reality, it was an exhibition put on by the owner of the railroad that happened to go to this lake in New Hampshire, and it That's was That's uh, Lake Lake Winnipesaukee. Yes, Lake Winnipesaukee. Absolutely correct. And 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 it was all about getting the wealthy alumni to ride his train and go for a weekend 
and in at Lake Winnipesaukee and watch these two these two race. And um, so so this is a system that exi- existed in the early 1800s and continued on for about a century. Then at the turn of the 20th century, football began to emerge, and and it was such a violent game, Paul. It was it was there were there were. No, I, I think we should just let me just correct here in a historical record. I think it was interesting when you say the turn of the century. Obviously, we're, you're referring to entering the uh, 20th century. Yeah, and yeah. the the first baseball game. I, I made a couple of notes of these. One, because uh, I was particularly interested, the first baseball game, collegiate level, Amherst versus Williams. The score was seventy three to thirty two in eighteen fifty nine, <laughs> and the first football game, um, in eighteen sixty nine, uh, as reported by Mark Yost, but in fact is a fact. Rutgers versus Princeton. It was six to four. <laughs> Clearly, something's <laughs> happened with the scoring, if nothing else. Yes, the games, the games were very different back then. The football scoring was different there. Even for that that game with Princeton, I, I don't even believe I don't believe the line of scrimmage had even been invented yet. It was more akin to rugby right. than what we know as to be modern football today. But but um, but, it, but it was quickly, as you pointed out, to continue with your story, it was quickly noted that this aroused the fervor and could empty the wallets of alums and people who otherwise were associated with the institution. Oh, absolutely. And um, from very early on, there was cheating in, in the aspect of they would use professional players and they would, they would bogusly enroll in the university for a month or two to come in. In fact, in fact Fielding Yost, one of, no relation to me, but he was uh, one of the revered athletic directors at Michigan. Um, he actually was recruited by Penn to come in and play one game against Princeton and defeat them. And, and so, so these, these deals where alumni, uh, professional players would come in for, for, for pay was going on as, as, as much as 150 years ago. And, um, it's changed a little bit since then, but, but what really, I think what you're getting to is what really led to the development of the NCAA was the death in college football. It was a very violent game. They didn't have pads. They used a formation called the Flying Wedge, which was eventually outlawed, which would just uh, go down the field and knock people out of the way and trample them. And uh, even Teddy Roosevelt, who was a huge college football fan, uh, pressured Harvard to do something about this. And that's how the NCAA was born, was to sort of police college athletics and clean up the game and, and, and curtail the cheating and the under-the-table payoffs and that sort of thing. Part of, uh, and, and I, I enjoyed your book, I enjoy your writing, and that's clear from your and my discussions now, happily over the years in such, uh, in NASCAR and and uh, and uh, football, the tailgating uh, book that you wrote, um, it it's. It, I, I want to fold in some of your some of your anecdotes and remarks as you're doing, but put put it in the context of somebody who studied this. You say that the um, that the, the the system is broken. The last line of your epilogue is, says, where does it end? And 
it strikes me that it's a curiously American phenomenon. I may, I may be wrong about that, but I'd like you to put it in the context of the international sporting scene, what's, what, what's with going on in, in the World Cup coming up in South Africa and the like. Is, is, this, particular, is this unique to the U.S.? And give us a sense of what you think Who's who's getting damaged here? What, what, where is the where is the problem that you're pointing out, and is the corruption ultimately something that's eating away at the foundation of American academics or the American sporting scene? Where's the harm? Where's the foul? Well, the the real harm here is um, is is I I expect kids to behave like kids. Kids make stupid mistakes in college. Um, it just so happens, and I mentioned this in the book, that if you're, a, if you're a premier athlete and you make a stupid mistake, it's front page news. But the same night that that premier athlete made a stupid mistake, there were a hundred other kids on campus who did stupid things, but their names weren't in the paper. They weren't the subject of an NCAA investigation. The problem is the adults, Paul. That That's the problem here, is that the adults are not acting like adults, and they're not looking out for the welfare of, of these children. And that's really what they are. They may be able to run faster and farther than everyone else and do incredible, incredibly acrobatic things on the basketball court, but these are kids. And even though college is a time of, of freedom and, and, and growth and discovery, they, they need to be supervised, and they're not. And, and, and the sad thing about, about this, and, and it's a theme that runs through my book, is that these kids are manipulated by adults who are motivated by money their entire lives. I'll give you a good example. I went to an elite AAU basketball tournament in Walt Disney World. And it happens every year. That's where the national big national tournaments are. And, yes, there are college coaches there to look at the juniors and seniors in high school, but they're also there to look at the 9- and 10-year-olds. The Scouts, Inc., which is one of the rating agencies, they rate the best high school quarterback, or the best, I shouldn't say high school, the best quarterback and the best power forward, 9- and 10-year-old kids, Paul. And you, you go to these tournaments, and these coaches are, are screaming and cursing at these kids, dropping F-bombs at these kids, uh, 10, 9, 10, 11 years old, and the kids come on the bench, and I, I, I saw kids break down in tears after being berated. And, and this is the life that they live. From the time that they, they throw their first spiral pass or make their first three-point shot, they're, they're targeted by these adults and, and who are supposed to be looking out for them. And, and what happens is it's a progression. They go from AAU to junior high, from junior high to high school, and their entire life is focused on this one sport. And the dream that is held out to them is that don't worry about academics. Focus on athletics, and this is your ticket out. This is your ticket off the farm. This is your ticket out of the ghetto. And if you, if you focus on this, this, is, this is, will be how you will be a success. And the sad part of it is that that's nowhere near the truth, because as I talk about in the book, 3% of kids who play high school basketball 
get an NCAA Division I scholarship, less than 2% of those kids ever have a meaningful NBA career. So the vast majority of these kids who are passed along from grade to grade, given, given passing grades when they don't really deserve it, end up in college not being able to read or write, the vast majority of these kids end up at the end of three or four years with 60 credit hours, take courses, sociology, phys ed, that sort of thing, end up with 60 credits, no future, and they're sent back to where they came from. That's the harm and that's the foul of this system. And there's a lot of people to blame, but it's not the kids. The, the adults who are supposed to be looking out for these kids are doing anything but they're, they're exploiting these kids. Well, and, and I, I hear that and I've, I've, I've seen the examples in your book. Uh, clearly one of the cross riffs on that is it is a ticket even though it's a very high risk and very low reward chance of that being your way out of the ghetto, the the people in, and we don't have to use the term ghetto, we can use any inner city, if you will, that doesn't enjoy uh, some of the other bounties of uh, America, but that's where the games, particularly the game of basketball, lives. Um, the counterbalancing is why are you, why would not you, but why would the system try and deny access, the potential that that could happen to somebody? It seems to me it's one of the, it's one of the classic American dilemmas, albeit covered by the, AL, the ACLU and other what people would consider liberal um, f factors in America. It's one of the things, it's one of the balances of our society that people that are great can, in, in sports can, in fact, lead a very full and rich life. And if you, if you don't make it, you don't make it. It, um, the, the, it seems to me that what is in your book is so endemic that the where is it all going to end, it, 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 is not, it does not appear to be. In the, in the comparison to the financial meltdown and the Great Recession, I saw that with a, in the paper today where somebody put the, a G and the R. So maybe we're talking about this now as the Great Recession. Um, in the process of the Great Recession, this does not seem to be a system like, financials, like the financial services or the mortgage bubble where there's the potential that it's going to blow up. Do you, do you see it potentially going? Where does it end that there's some, there's some great climactic ending to this story? Um, no, because the media contracts just keep getting bigger. Um, CBS just paid $6.1 billion, that's with a B, um, for the rights to March Madness. Um, a school even as, as, as small as uh, LSU, which has a great football program, they, they sold the media rights for their football team for, for $60 million. Um, so, no, it's, it's not going to end. It's going to keep going, and as long as people keep uh, filing into stadiums and arenas and, and buying alumni boxes and making donations, um, uh, no, it's, it's going to continue. Um, you, you asked about the degradation of, of, of the academy, and, and there is one disturbing trend that I point out in the book, that, that does hint towards that. For the longest time, academic donations from alumni far outpaced those of athletics. 
today, over the last 10 years, it's, it's about equal. It's getting to be on parity. Um, that alumni give as much to athletics as they do in academics. And the more disturbing trend is that over the past 10 years, while academic giving has been relatively flat, athletic giving has been growing at a pace of about 10% a year. Now, some of that is skewed by wealthy, extremely wealthy donors like T. Boone Pickens, who set the record for the single largest donation to a university program ever, $165 million to Oklahoma State. Uh, he's a big supporter of their football program, and nearly everything on campus is named after him. And then there's Phil Knight, who's given away estimates of, of $500 million to mostly to Oregon, where he ran track. And um, so that, that's, the, that's the concern, is that the athletics in some ways is starting to overshadow the academic mission of the university and, and affect it in a financial way. Um, I just had a piece in the Wall Street Journal about how Oregon, once again, despite the largesse of, of Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, they, they are maxed out on their bonding capacity for a new basketball arena, and therefore they have had to delay renovations to the dorm rooms that was a 10-year plan. They were supposed to renovate 10% of the dorms every year for 10 years. That plan's been put on hold because they've, they've maxed out their bonding authority in building a new basketball arena. That's what, that's what people are worried about. Uh, completely as an anecdotal aside, but I thought it was interesting, tell the story of Sonny Vaccaro. Well, <laughs> Sonny Vaccaro is, is an interesting guy. He, he, came, he came along in the, in the late 1970s. and um, which, 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 to, The way you say that sounds so long ago. But from, <laughs> and, and I appreciate, I appreciate I that. We're both out of high school. Let's put it that way. Uh, okay, <laughs> thanks very much. But, it, but it is, it, it's interesting, to in the perspective of, uh, of the boomers and the like, to see that that this the, the the big time in this is not all that long ago no and and when no. you think of what your story is going to say is that the story of nike which is now the swoosh emblematic of american apparel throughout the world yeah really is is a, is a is a cultural phenomenon much like the athletic budget it is it's, and and, it's, and we should point out that this money the money has really exploded exponentially over the past 30 years, since probably the 1980s. And um, but you're right that Nike's a good story. When when Nike wanted to get into basketball, basketball was owned by Converse, um, which <laughs> you and I will also find funny because it's considered a retro brand now. When when you and I were growing up, it was the brand. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, Converse owned basketball. Their Chuck Taylor high top sneakers. Every, every basketball team in the country wore those. And Nike, uh, Sonny Vaccaro was an entrepreneurial guy from western Pennsylvania. Uh, he, he was well known on the street courts in New York and Philadelphia and L.A. And he was sort of a talent scout, but he, he really wanted to get into the shoe business. And he took some shoe ideas to Nike, and they sort of looked at him and, and weren't really interested. But then they looked at him as a, sort, a resource, and they said, okay, Converse owns basketball. How, how can we get into basketball? 
and he, he thought, went home and thought about it for a little bit, and he called up Phil Knight, and he said, pay these guys. And Phil Knight said, what? He said, pay the coaches. Pay the coaches to have their kids wear your shoes. And Phil Knight said, can we do that? And, and Vicaro said, there's no rule against it. And sure enough, that's where the apparel and sneaker deals began. Nike began paying coaches to have their kids wear their shoes. And that's how they penetrated that market. And it started with Jim Valvano at North Carolina State and Jerry Tarkanian uh, at uh, UNLV. Who Interesting, Tarkanian has an interesting quote, uh, a thing he always says about college athletics. He says that nine out of ten teams in college sports are cheating and the tenth team is in last place. Yeah, saw so, that. Um, but so, yeah, Nike, Nike basically bought their way into college basketball. And, and they gave Vaccaro shoes to go to courts in, uh, you know, the courts at West 6th Street in the Village, which is probably the best basketball in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and he went to places like that, places in, in Newark, Chicago, L.A., and he, he started running these elite basketball tournaments, these invitational-only talent scouting tournaments, and Nike would ship him loads of gear to give away, bags, sneakers, T-shirts. And, and, and that brings us back to that 9- and 10-year-old tournament I went to in, in Florida, in Disney World. Those kids on the elite traveling AAU teams, they're all sponsored. They, they all have Nike. There's teams. There, there's a teams called, like, Florida Adidas and Florida Nike. For ten-year-olds, right, that are sponsored by the shoe companies. It's um, knowing that you looked looked at it, and 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 frankly, um, since your book has been published, this the whole issue about coaches. Um, you know, there, there's so many places that this discussion can go. The turnover in coaches, the how the coaches who were turned out in disgrace, which is one of the features of your book, if you will, one of the chapters, how people turned out in disgrace, end up in other places and and uh, disgrace those other places, but certainly leave a legacy of winning and, and support and all that. Um, fast forward, perhaps, to one could argue the NFL's um, hesitancy or the, the debacle over the uh, concussion discussion and whether the doctors were in the uh, pockets of, uh, of management, if you will, to quiet down the, the, uh, the, the real damage, the long-term damage to adults, which now seems to be virtually irrefutable, and straight through to um, uh, Secretary, Education Secretary Arne Duncan's recent remarks uh, regarding the NBA and the, and the NCAA and so what you're addressing here at the college level, and you allude to the 10- and 11-year-olds, but this goes, this is a continuum in which there is, as you, one of the chapters in your book, whether it's a cabal or a, the mafia, without saying which is better or worse, this is something that is so now ingrained with big money that is not going to go away that one of the questions that I would have is, where is the role of the university president? Where is the balance of of power here for somebody who is you know w- walks every June at the front of a procession in which 
the list price education is anywhere from thirty-five to fifty thousand dollars per graduate per year, and um, the athletic director and the coach um, probably forgetting salaries or income. But where where is the where is the balance of power? And I, I know I'm asking Mark Yost here, who's the author of uh, Varsity Green and a book about business and culture in athletics and taking you a bit far afield, but you've looked at it, you've talked to the people. What do you come away with in, in the fabric of the, of the university, how, how it all really works? Well, here's how it works, and um, uh, I'm going to answer the question by directing you to another book that was the source my book, and it's called Intercollegiate Athletics in the American University by James J. Duderstadt, who used to be the university president at Michigan. And he, deser he, he deserves some credit because he basically admitted in the book that the money from college athletics and the exposure that college athletics provides a university is too great for even the most principled college president to resist. And, and that's a powerful statement that says something about this culture, this idea that, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, recruiting and, and the image of the university um, comes ahead of the academic integrity of the university. That, that's, that's really very stunning. And, um, you know, and, and, it, and I, let me just interrupt to say that the, particularly in the beginnings of the book and, and throughout, but particularly historically, th there, is, there is no system, including the Ivy League, that is separated or inured from this. This, is, this goes from the, the most high of American academic institutions to those that would be uh, arguably called athletic or, or um, you know, stadium mills. Sure. Sure, and I mean there are a few exceptions. The University of Chicago gave up um, uh, athletics in the 1930s because they their then president saw this and saw this trend. And there's an old sports writer's joke that um, you know Michigan has a couple of dozen um, uh, NCAA titles, and all the University of Chicago has is the atom bomb. Right. Of course, that's where the intellectual headquarters of the Manhattan Project was. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, I guess to answer your question is it goes back to this sort of thesis of mine that, that the problem is not the kids, it's the adults. And the adults are not acting like we would expect adults to act. And, 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 and that's to realize that the, ac the academic integrity of the university it does not have a price. You can't, you can't put a price on it. But as Duderstadt says, it's hard to argue with what he says, that, that it's sort of the price of doing business that you, you recognize that in exchange for all this television exposure and these alumni donations and, and that, that um, you're willing to let perhaps 100 students that don't belong at the university come in and, and be athletes first and students second, and, and, and that's the trade-off. And there's quite a few college presidents who have, who have looked at it. Um, the other thing that Duderstadt says is that, that – um, uh, good luck fighting the alumni. 
um, uh, because the alumni will kill you. Um, I, I, they'll, they'll drive you out of town. And, and a good example of that in my book is this woman, Nancy Zimfer, who was the president of Cincinnati. She basically drove Bob Huggins, the basketball coach, out of town because he had a, he had a basketball team that had a 0% graduation rate. Um, and, 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 but lo and behold, two years later, after I was re done researching the book, Nancy Zimfer isn't in Cincinnati anymore. She was driven out by the alumni who fully recognized all of Huggins' shortcomings and the fact that his students had no, no dream whatsoever ever graduating other than to the NBA. She's, she's since moved on. She's in Albany now. She's the president of the SUNY, the State University of New York system. And, but so it's, it's, it's a bunch of people acting inappropriately, and, and it, it, quite frankly, it's, it's become the status quo. And it's just become accepted that there's this segment of the university that operates outside of the rules of everyone else. They have, they have special food, they have special dorms, they have special, special classes, they, they have, you know, they don't have to take the test at the same time as everybody else, and um, it's just accepted. It strikes me, uh, not necessarily in conclusion, but we're going to draw our conversation to a close, uh, it strikes me that it's a little bit like the discussion of regulation in the financial services industry how much government ought to be involved and how much private enterprise and the free market system rules. It certainly is within the, uh, it would be threatened in the courts, presumably, but that's the American way. It certainly is within the purview of the uh, NBA, for instance, or the NFL, but the NBA particularly with kids now only doing stars, uh, sometimes bypassing college and going straight in that there would be a, either an age limitation or a academic credentialing uh, limitation. Is regulation and, and, and sort of the American mind that say no mas, that is the only way that this thing will be curbed? Um, I don't think so. And, and, and I, I don't think so on a philosophical level because, as you know, I... <laughs> I worked at the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal for five years, and, and, and we don't believe that regulation is really the answer to anything. It's, it's, the answer is people, because regulation can only do so much. You, can only, you can't have a cop on every corner. You can't have an NCAA investigator in every gym in the country. And, and, and so I, I think what it's going to take is some sort of leadership within the university system, a, 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 a group of college presidents perhaps that get together um, uh, and, and, and say enough is enough and, and shame and pressure this system into changing. But, but again, the money is so great here. I mean, like I said, the March Madness, $6.1 billion just for the TV contract. That doesn't count a single ticket that gets sold or the apparel, or any of that. And it's, it's really become an out-of-control machine that is going to be very, very hard to reform. Not unlike our current government. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I hear that. I hear you, Commissioner Yost. It's a it's such a fascinating subject. We could go on uh, a long time. Uh, the book is is coming out in uh, or has come out. Yeah, uh, January fifteenth was the official pub date, and we're talking here on January nineteenth. Great. Uh, and how can people access it through the usual uh, portals? I assume. Yep, Amazon.com, uh, Borders, uh, or through the Stanford University uh, Press website. Uh, Mark Yost, and that's spelled Y-O-S-T, the author of Varsity Green. Stanford University Press is the imprint. It is a fascinating historical look, lots of anecdotes, lots of Mark Yost in it, uh, which is nice, uh, opinions and and um, thoughts about where we are and where we're going from a guy who's been looking at this for a long time. Mark, thanks for joining me again today. Good luck with the book. We can't wait for the next one. Well, thank you, Paul. Always good to talk with you. And aren't we all right in the midst, right in the dead center of everything that Mark Yost has been talking about? We've got the end of the football season in the college ranks with the BCS Bowl. P.S. Who won this year? Not sure. A lot of talk about uh, how you crown a national champion. We're in the midst of the professional football finals, playoffs, leading up to the Super Bowl. March Madness is right around the corner. Uh, And where does it all begin? It all begins with money. And I'm not sure where that leads, nor is Mark. But you think about it. Let me know what you think. McLaughlin at Mac.com will... Send an email to me if you're so inclined. Always looking forward to listening to what the leadership has to say. As we move into the second interview, Never Fly Solo with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rob Waldo Walden. We're going to lead off with his answering machine, which I think is an interesting uh, reflection on his style and uh, aggressiveness and talk. You get an introduction to him right from the get-go. Introduction at the bottom of the screen, if you're watching, um, is to our sponsor, Classroom 24-7, your web solution for online learning and certification training. They do it. They do it better than anybody I know. Check them out if that's what you or your company needs. And now on to Never Fly Solo with himself, Lieutenant Colonel Waldman on the line. Hi, this is the wingman, Lieutenant Colonel Rob Waldo Waldman, author of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Never Fly Solo. I'm out flying a mission with a customer, so if you need to get a hold of me, leave a message here and also email me at waldo at yourwingman.com. I look forward to flying a mission with you. Remember, push it up, check six, and never fly solo. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work. My motto, even though I'm the man at this end of the microphone, Never Fly Solo, the title of the book written by Lieutenant Colonel Rob Waldo Waldman, Lead with Courage, Build Trusting Partnerships, and Reach New Heights in Business. Waldo has combined what he did for a living early in his career to what he's doing for a living now. What are the synergies, Waldo? Well, I appreciate uh, being here with you, Paul. I... uh like you, served in the military for many years. I'm still a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force Reserve right now, a fighter pilot with 65 combat missions in uh, Iraq and Serbia. So I had a couple of missiles launched at me. But the biggest thing that I learned in my years as a fighter pilot and then transitioning to the business world is that you survive on your own 
but uh, you're, you're definitely more likely to win with wingmen, those people that you trust and who are there for you in your formation. That's, uh, that's the key concept here. What made you take up uh, A, flying, and B, a military pilot? Well, like you, I was born in, uh, in Long Island. You're a Brooklyn guy like my parents, but I was out east on the island, grew up in a, in a large family. Parents were very, very poor growing up, taught us about education and discipline and commitment. And one thing that was always something in the back of my mind that I've always enjoyed was challenge. Uh, I decided to go to the Air Force Academy because of the challenge, the uniqueness, the opportunity to travel and stretch myself. Uh, becoming a fighter pilot to me was a logical progression because it was the, the best of the best. And What, what uh, percentage of the uh, graduating class from the Air Force Academy actually flies? I'd say probably 40%. Oh, really? I, it, I didn't think it was that high. I'm talking to Waldo Waldman, Lieutenant Colonel Rob Waldo Waldman, um, who was a uh, pilot, still is in the Air Force Reserve. Well, the, the concept of the book, Never Fly Solo, which, by the way, just uh, became a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. Congratulations. When, and how long has it been out? It's been out only uh, three and a half weeks, three weeks. Good for you. Yeah, yeah, really exciting about that. Uh, and and it's, it's a business book. It's a business leadership book. And the premise is that uh, we need to build trusting partnerships in life. And it sounds kind of passe. It's a, you know, teamwork and trust is, is, is relatively common in the, in the workplace. But what I try to do is take my combat experiences, uh, the things I've learned strapped into the cockpit where the missiles were real, and, and, and show how the average Joe and Joanne in the business community can use some of the concepts, uh, one of them being that you have to know when to ask for help. As a fighter pilot, calling out mayday to your wingman is the wingman's call to action. We need to be able to ask for help and have people on our wing who we've already built relationships with before the missiles came that are going to be there for us. I think in business, in particular, with the, the missiles that are being launched, the economy changing, people being out of work, uh, entrepreneurs are, are struggling more than ever to, to keep their jobs and expand. Uh, the partners that you have are, are so critical to your success. How do you deal with a civilian business hierarchy? How, how does that compare to a military hierarchy, and how does it not compare? And what is the adaption that somebody has to make? Well, there is a chain of command in the military as there is in the business world. You know, you don't go direct to your CEO just as you don't go direct to your commander. Uh, you have to earn your rank, uh, and uh, it takes time. Rank has to be honored and, and experience as well. But one of the things I think we don't do in the, in the business world like we do in the military is the concept of the debrief, and I think you're familiar with it being an ex-military guy yourself. Uh, sitting down with your team, following a mission, and creating an environment where there's open communication. What we do as fighter pilots after we fly a mission is we come back, we take off our rank, and take off our name tags. So there is an equal hierarchy in the room because it's critical that we facilitate open communication and you have to be willing to say, I messed up. Because safety is often a, 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 an issue. And the way the leader, the flight leader, does this is he or she admits their problems first. They expose their chest to daggers, as we say in the military, share what they did wrong in the mission so as to open up the rest of the communication between the members of the formation. There may be a young 
lieutenant who's brand new to the squadron who may be afraid to admit when they messed up. But if you show that you've messed up, share how to fix it, then your ability, your ability to, to facilitate the problems or facilitate a solution to the problems that happened on that flight is important. I think if we did that in business, uh, a lot of solutions would be, uh, would be more apparent. And also innovation would be created uh, and, and improved because those new hires, the people that might be afraid to share a new idea or concept, will be more likely to open up and share them with the, with the rest of the squadron. It, do, it does raise that whole issue around technology because I'm sure as a pilot and as the leader of, of a group of aircraft um, that you are reliant on the technicians to make sure, A, that the technology works, and B, to make sure that you understand it um, well as, uh, as well as they do. And, and in business, where we're so overloaded now with technology, so I was speaking recently about some of the financial uh, issues that we've faced because of derivatives and, and highly specialized instruments that maybe the pilot, the, the CEO, didn't fully appreciate. How, how, does that, how does the merger of technology to the pilot uh, work in the military, and, and how is that analogous to these uh, a post-mortem uh, on, on, on a deal? Well, look, here's, here's, here's the situation. I mean, the technology must be, I mean, you, you, you obviously you grew up more in a computer era, but, but even you are of an age where uh, the technology does have, notwithstanding your education and experience, there is a little bit of black magic in it. Yes, but, but the point is, especially with, with what I try to teach in my seminars, is that you may have an amazing amount of technology. It helps us be prepared. It helps us be more reliable, uh, communicate more with social media. We can be accessible 24-7 with our Blackberries and our iPhones, etc. But if we rely so much on that and we connect, connect only via technology, we're missing the boat. The key to being, wing, uh, being a wingman and building trust is that person-to-person -person connection, which we're losing more today because of technology. We've got to get back to the basics. We've got to get back to uh, sipping a cup of coffee and connecting with our wingman. We've got to walk the flight line. If you're in sales, get out there and talk to tech support and customer service. If you're in uh, research and development, see what the salespeople are doing. Get to know your wingman as people first rather than uh, business people first. Technology, Paul, is, is, is taking that away. And you look at the generational differences now. The kids coming out of Georgia Tech and Caltech, uh, they're great with the technology, but they're failing on the fundamentals of connection. And this is something that we need to get back, back to in America, American business. That's my own philosophy and personal views, and I, and I, and I witness it every day and, and when I'm walking the flight line of businesses I work with. And are there actually women pilots now? Absolutely. That's a silly question. I realize that. Did you ever have a wingman who was a woman? I have. One of my instructor pilots, uh, Dawn Dunlop, she's a, a colonel in the Air Force uh, at the Pentagon right now. She was my instructor pilot back in the 90s. It's not all hardcore blood, guts, and muscle. It's a very thinking, uh, very seriously intellectual environment when you're flying those aircraft, and women are just as good as men. Uh, but that we'll, we'll wash them out as fast as a man as well if they don't meet the qualifications and aren't combat ready. In your experience, Waldo, uh, are women different as pilots than men? And if so, how? Uh, I guess 
in some ways they can be, but uh, some of them uh, are even better in some regard. No, well, I'm not talking about that. I mean, I'm talking about somebody who has been there with them. When you're in business, it is different. I don't care what they say. Sure. It sure. is different working with a woman in business, just like in for women working with men in business is different than being in, a, in the an all women's club. Right. How is it different? In, how would you describe it different? Uh, a, a woman pilot. I think by the time they get to that situation where they they have their wings and they're in a fighter squadron, it takes a different breed of person, uh, a different breed of woman to be in that environment. So they have to have a little bit more uh, nerves of steel. They have to be a little bit more resilient to criticism, less emotional. And this is men and women. They're a different type of woman by the time they hit that that. Uh, uh, that, that pinnacle of being a fighter pilot. When you say it's not so touchy-feely, clearly you and, and, and most men would come with that bias that that's what you've got to get out of a woman before she can succeed as a pilot. Same can be said in, um, same can be said in, in business. And let me turn that, turn that to the future. Are pilots, as a result of their training, the decisions they have to make where they are in the pyramid, how does a good pilot become a good subordinate? Uh, I think you become a good subordinate as a pilot or in business by knowing your job, first and foremost. Uh, there is no rank when you're out there flying the mission, essentially. When you're out there getting the job done, your experience level and all that stuff counts. But did you hit the target? Did you back each other up? Did you provide mutual support? Did you apply the procedure the right way? There is no substitute for discipline preparation at the end of the day. Uh, so, so I think that's, that's fundamental. Uh, and it's an even playing field when you come back and look at the tapes. The ones that are doing their job and hitting the target and, uh, and the, mo the most prepared are the ones that are going to make it uh, through the ranks the quickest. And I think that applies in business as well. Today, uh, the customer is less uh, forgiving, and so are your coworkers. We've got to be prepared. There's more, that's being done with uh, there's more that needs to be done with less people. Budgets are cut. Uh, if I was a CEO of a company, I'm going to look at who's the performers, and I'm not going to worry too much about, about hierarchy and rank uh, as much as getting the job done. Based on your experience, what is your guidance to a new CEO coming into a position, probably, as most CEOs do, where there had been a, an issue of leadership in, uh, before, so they're coming into... A troubled situation. What did you learn structurally that applies to business as to how pump somebody can can in 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 your vernacular slip into that uh, pilot seat in a business and do it effectively? Well, I remember one time when I was a young captain, I was late for one of my mission briefings. And when you're late for a briefing in the military, in the fighter squadron, you're grounded because you impacted the entire formation, the entire flight, and you also got to bring donuts. So I remember going to the squadron. My flight commander was a seasoned uh, former fighter pilot, really, really tough guy. I dropped the donuts off to the guys. I sat down, bummed out that I wasn't going to fly. When they left that briefing room and got ready to go and fly their missions, the last person out of that room was my commander, and he started walking towards me, and he had this look on his face like he was going to rip my head off. And I wasn't sure what to expect. And he came up to me and he said, Waldo, 
uh, he's like, I noticed you were late. And I said, hey, sorry, sir, I overslept. It won't happen again. But he's like, listen, is, there every, is everything okay at home? You're never late. Do you feel okay? Do you need a day off? What's going on, Waldo? Talk to me. And I admit I was shocked. And it made me realize that he understood that I had a life outside of work, outside of the fact that I was a fighter pilot. And he asked me the right questions. He connected with me as a person first. And he built my loyalty up even more. I volunteered for the crummy jobs. I became that much more respectful to him as my commander. And I think as leaders and CEOs out there, to, to get rid of that stereotype, to create an environment where you're a little bit more open with your people, where you, where you connect with them heart to heart, they will go the extra mile for you. As a CEO, yes, rank has its privileges, but when you get out there, walk the flight line, appreciate your wingmen and your, and your organization. I think when the missiles do come, when the budgets do get cut, when you're expecting them to work even harder, they will go the extra mile for you and push it up. How is the military received in corporate America today? I think the military is very respected. Uh, they, customers or the audience member might not like what's going on in the world today in Iraq and Serbia, but in general, the military, in particular, fighter pilots, because we're kind of uh, more of this, this stereotype, uh, you know, uh, you know, top of the line of the military and special forces, I guess. Uh, what well, at I least you can talk about it. Yeah, yeah. And I, Some and I have special to... forces folks can't. Well, I can't talk a lot about the things I've done as well, but uh, uh, any of those special forces guys and gals who do what they do, they're uh, pretty amazing. But I, I don't think uh, the military is shunned upon by any stretch, but I don't, I don't like pushing the whole philosophy of blood makes the grass grow, kill the competition, the typical military genre uh, type of philosophies that are out there with that some of the former military speakers talk about. I talk more about connection and relationships. Having overcome claustrophobia, having been in combat and watched my life flash before my eyes, watched my wingmen and many of them die. Uh, I've lost a lot of guys over the years. Uh, it, it's about connecting, about having trust, and when the missiles come at you, you you're there for each other. And and in that sense, my philosophies and my speaking is a little different than the typical military guy. I have the quote unquote sexy flight suit and the combat and fighter pilot stuff, but at the end of the day, it's about people, and that's what they want to hear. They don't want to, to look at a speaker and say, "I can't do that." I want them to say, "I'm a wingman. I'm a fighter pilot." And I don't need to wear a flight suit to fly an F-16 to be one. That's, that's important for me. That's what I think my audiences get. And the team power is what launches airplanes and what is, is, uh, has success. From where you are and, and having been involved in, uh, in a number of theaters that may, history may prove to say were successful or not successful, that wasn't your decision, um, are you optimistic, pessimistic, and if you're realistic, how's America doing? In 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 the uh, not in the military sense, uh, but in the business sense. In the, in the business sense, I think we're doing okay. I think we have an integrity issue. I think people aren't stepping up and, and uh, accepting responsibilities for their failures and the things that they've messed up on. You look at politics. You look at the the, the business world. We've got greed uh, that's pretty rampant, and greed will always be there. But let's face it, uh, you look at the, the Enrons, you look at uh, the, the you know, AIGs with the bonuses, that really frustrates me to the, to the deepest core. 
my book, Never Fly Solo, is, is, and my philosophies in life are about getting back to the core values of accountability, integrity, uh, service. Let's get back to what makes America great. And I think we are hurting in some regard. People aren't stepping up and accepting the consequences and fixing things. We're too afraid to uh, upset the apple cart. And racism, the politics, we're, we're too afraid to, to upset people. We've got to do what's right. We've got to do what's right. And sometimes that's making a tough decision. Uh, but uh, I do think our country has a lot more work to do. And I'm, I, I admit I'm a little bit concerned. But we've got to get back to the core values. Uh, otherwise, uh, I think we're going to be in trouble. Final question for uh, Waldo Waldman, Never Fly Solo, Lead with Courage, Building Trusting Relationships, and Reach New Heights in Business. And this, this is going to come in from left field. Compensation. You guys are, uh, are and, and women who fly, or everybody in the military is compensated uh, on a, based on rank and experience and years and all that. Uh, but there, there aren't the disparities that deal in business. What would happen if um, what would happen if there was a premium placed on certain activities within the flying world? How would that affect how people reacted and performed? And can you offer any insight into the? compensation models in companies and how that steers people's uh, performance as compared to the military where it's all pretty much flat? Well, when I hit the target or I did my job in the military, I didn't get a commission check. Let's, let's be straight up. Uh, when you walk into a squadron, of a fighter squadron in particular, you walk down the halls and you see the top guns on the wall, the wingmen of the quarter, the flight leader of the year, the top gun of the, of the, uh, of the, of the month. We are a performance-based environment, and that's how we judge our, our, our best performers. We, don't, we give awards and recognition. We don't give compensation. Now, in the business world, obviously, commission checks and, and uh, compensation is important. But I think some people, especially the successful salespeople who are making a couple hundred thousand dollars or more a year, they're doing well, they've been around, we need to, to, to recognize the top guns in our organization. I like to, you know, you know give an award, have a top gun of the quarter or, or the year, have a, a bronze statue, recognize them publicly. That inspires intrinsically performance more so than money, in my opinion. And when we create that environment in business where we recognize the top guns, where we appreciate them, we put them on the wall, we emulate them, we, we have them mentor formally and informally the new hires in the organization, it gives more meaning to the mission. And when you find more meaning in your mission when you go to work, you realize it's not just about money. It's about taking care of people and, and serving. And we like to be recognized. We like to be appreciated for what we do. But uh, a performance-based culture is not just on, on, on money. It's about compensating our hearts and our minds, not just our pocketbooks. Waldo, very valuable to the business community to hear somebody transition from where you were to, to where you are. Your insights are important. And Waldo, you mentioned um, that the book has moved up on the New York Times and Wall Street Journal uh, bestseller list. Uh, how can people access Never Fly Solo and learn more about you and what you do? They can go to neverflysolo.com. 
there's a, a video trailer that it talks about the book, and there's uh, links to buy the book on Amazon. They can also uh, get it at BarnesandNoble.com or any Barnes and Noble or Borders bookstore uh, 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 right there in their local community. So it's all over the place. And, and your own website, if people uh, would like to uh, have uh, Waldo Waldman address their uh, their, their uh, companies. Yeah, it's uh, yourwingman.com. Also has a ton of my demo videos and uh, and corporate speaking uh, uh, engagements, etc. On that website, and you can get there either through NeverFlySolo.com or go direct to YourWingman.com. Lead with courage, build trusting partnerships, reach new heights in business. Never fly solo. The book and the experience from Waldo Waldman. Thanks very much for being with me, Paul McLaughlin. McLaughlin at work here today. Pleasure to meet you, Paul.